0: Lord, we always say it's all about you, so let it all be about you. That you get the glory, the body of Christ is edified, and your salvation is presented. Help us to walk out of this room just knowing you deeper, Lord, as that is all that matters in your name. Amen. Tonight we're doing the feeding of the 4,000. You may say, what's the difference between the feeding of the 5,000 and the 4,000? I'm glad you asked. The simple answer is 1,000 people. That is the main difference there. This is a neat account here. And you may say, why are we going through this? Because we just two chapters ago did the feeding of the 5,000 plus the women and the children. Jesus doesn't have to prove anything. Why is he doing this again? And I want to let you know there's two words I want you to focus on. Just two words. If you remember correctly, last week we said there was two words to focus on. One of them was the word worship and the other one was the word side. Tonight there's two words I want you to focus on. One of them is the word you. Y-O-U, and the other one is the idea of just remembering. So with that being said, let's just go back and read this, verses 1 through 10 of Mark chapter 8. Let's get the whole context here. Let's come back and break this down. Verse 1, In those days the multitude, being very great, and having nothing to eat, Jesus called his disciples to him and said to them, I have compassion on the multitude, because they now have continued with me three days and have nothing to eat. And if I send them away hungry to their own houses, they will faint on the way, for some of them have come from afar." And his disciples answered him, how can one satisfy these people with bread here in the wilderness? He asked them, how many loaves do you have? And they said, seven. So he commanded the multitude to sit down on the ground and he took the seven loaves and gave thanks, broke them and gave them to his disciples to set before them. And they set them before the multitude. They also had a few small fish and having blessed them, he said to set them also before them. So they ate and were filled, and they took up seven large baskets of leftover fragments. Now those who had eaten were about 4,000. He sent them away. Immediately he got into the boat with his disciples and came to the region of Dalmatia. We'll pick that up next week, what happens from that point on. A couple quick things here I just want to point your attention to, building up to communion tonight. and You'll see why here in a little bit. Verse 2, I have compassion on the multitude. Compassion. And and some of these points are the same points we made just a few weeks ago, where in Mark chapter 8, we did the feeding of the 5,000. This word compassion is a powerfully strong word, folks. And I think compassion is a difficult word to define. If I came up to you and said, how would you define compassion? It's kind of difficult. In the original language, it means from the inside, literally from the bowels. We would say from the gut. And this word is only used in the New Testament to describe Jesus or Jesus used it in talking in parables. That's the only person to use that. So you see the importance of this word that only describes Christ or only describes the people that Jesus is talking about in parables. This is what we're supposed to imitate. Please remember, the whole goal is we are Christians, so therefore we are a follower of Christ, which means we're supposed to be like Christ. Christ had compassion, we're supposed to have compassion. Please understand the depth of this world word. This is not you feel bad for somebody. This is not you throw a little money at them. This is not you just go over and try to help. This means you are so moved by their situation, you're stopping and saying, "What can I do? I don't want to just pray. I don't want to just send 20 bucks in the mail. I want to get in there and do something. And I've just noticed in my life, I can't speak for you guys, but in my life there's this constant battle to want to protect my resources, my possessions, my free time, my whatever. And when I really look at the word compassion, I realize that word is just, you got to let it all go. There is no free time. It's all the Lord's. I'm a bondservant. The bondservant doesn't go to the master and say, hey, I'm taking this time off. They're not my possessions or the Lord's possessions. It's not my time. It's not my money. It's not my anything. So therefore, to have compassion for somebody is to say, Lord, who do you want me to go love? And how are we loving these people? This is just straightforward, practical Christianity here. Verse 2, they continued with me three days. They have nothing to eat. They're hungry. So let's feed them. This straightforward, practical Christianity. See a need, pray, do something. That's not difficult. You see a need, pray about it, then do something. So often as Christians, we see a need, and then what do we do? We talk about it. We analyze it. We feel bad about it. How about we pray and go do something? So people are hungry, what should we do? I say we should go feed them. Now please note when it comes to the ministry of food... You've got to be careful with this a little bit. I've been involved in a lot of ministries where they offer a meal. And people will come for the meal and then they would try to do a teaching afterwards. And people wouldn't stick around for the teaching because they got their bellies full. So I know a lot of ministries that flipped it around. If you want to get the meal, you've got to come listen to the teaching first. It's amazing what people will do for a good free meal. They'll do a lot. And soup kitchens, etc. I'm not saying they're necessarily negative, but I'm telling you this right now. People aren't saved by getting food in their bellies. People are saved by the conviction of the Holy Spirit leading them to Jesus Christ. People with full bellies will still go to hell. Please remember that. We have a tendency sometimes as a Christian to want to do something so bad, we feel the action of doing something is where it's all at, and the gospel almost comes secondary. got to be careful about that. It's always about the gospel. Always about the gospel. You know, I, I can remember when we were down in Mexico last year and helping do the breakfast, and you you get this idea of, okay, we need to feed these people. You know, you I mean you need to make sure they got food. You gotta make sure there's taking care of this and the society and the poor or whatever. And you realize, okay, we gave them food, but they're still going to hell. And that's one of the things I loved about that when I was down there talking to Brie, where Bree would tell us who helps run the kitchen area of it. She would say, Listen, the only thing that matters are these people saved or not. That's what matters. And so what matters here is this. Yes, they're hungry. Let's feed them. But let's give them Jesus. Practical Christianity. You see a need, you pray, and you do something. So what do you do when somebody's hungry? Hey, let's try to feed them. It's all over the board on this one, folks. Romans 12, verse 20 says, if your enemy is hungry, guess what you're supposed to do? Feed them. James chapter 2 says, if you see a brother or sister naked and destitute for food, what should you do? Feed them. So I'm supposed to feed my enemies, I'm supposed to feed my brothers, I'm supposed to feed my sisters. Basically what it comes down to, if I have the opportunity to help somebody, I should help them. That's what Jesus is setting the example for here. Now granted, when Jesus does this, it also takes a deeper spiritual meaning. The book of Mark doesn't go into it a lot, but the book of John does. That when he would do these feedings of the 5,000, the feeding of the 4,000, he would then follow it up with these tough teachings where he said, I am the bread of life. And he basically really said, guys, it's not about the food in your bellies. It's about me. So I see the compassion side. I see the practical side. Now we're going to get to our first word here. The first word I said tonight for us to really focus on is you. Take a look here at verse 4. Then his disciples answered him, how can one satisfy these people with bread here in the wilderness? Don't you just want to stop right there and smack a couple disciples? I mean, don't you really do that? Don't you just want to stop and say, guys, two chapters ago. Two chapters ago, 5,000 men, not including the women and the children. What it says here in the book of Mark, it says there are about 4,000. Verse 9 doesn't say 4,000 men, so maybe this was a smaller crowd. Don't you just want to stop and say, we just saw this. Please remember, any time you see Jesus asking a question in the Bible or making a loaded statement like verse 3, he's doing it for a reason. He's probing the lines. He's trying to see what they're going to say and what they're going to do. I do that at home with my boys. I'll be like, hey guys, uh, we got a lot of food garbage on the counter. Need somebody to take that out? Crickets chirping, waiting to see who's going to jump up. I'll be like, oh hey guys, looks like your mom's doing something. She could really use a hand. I could tell somebody to do it. I want them to want to do it. I want them to step up and say, Jesus, this is my opinion. And let me stress again my opinion, and for the third time, my opinion. Don't you think Jesus, at the end of verse 3, wanted one of the disciples to say, Hey, Jesus, can't we just do what we did two chapters ago? Now, granted, they wouldn't say two chapters ago. But couldn't we just do what we did two chapters ago? No, verse 4. How can one satisfy these people with bread here in the wilderness? Boy, at this time, don't you think Jesus in his heart is just gone, Guys. So you may say, what's the point of this one? Since we've already gone through this, he can miraculously do it. Why is this one different? Because if you remember correctly back when they fed the 5,000 in Mark chapter 6, there was the boy, and the boy had five loaves and two fishes. What does he do this time? Verse 5. How many loaves do you have? You. Don't take food from a little boy this time. You give of your own Resources, guys. I don't see any one of you of the twelve stepping up and saying, Hey, we got some loaves here. I mean, we can't feed 4,000 people. We can at least feed somebody, right? No. We don't want to read too deep into this because you could get dangerous with it. But verse 5, he's asking them, How many loaves do you have? What are you willing to give up, disciples? What are you willing to give up, twelve? Twelve. Are you willing to set the example? Remember what we said a couple Sundays ago when we taught that uh, on possessions, going through the book of Proverbs? We said these little phrases God doesn't want my money, He just doesn't want me to want my money. God doesn't want my possessions, He just doesn't want me to want my possessions. He wants me to be able to let go of anything I have for Him. And so right now, they're in the wilderness. People are hungry. Can't you see these 12 almost hiding these loaves of bread? Jesus says, I want you to give them up for me. Now, I can only tell you this. Anytime the Lord has ever come to me and asked me to give something up for him, first off, what a ridiculous statement. Give something up for God. You ever thought that through? I don't know if you guys have ever read Oswald Chambers before. I'm a big fan of his. Great devotional, My Utmost for the Highest. He's got a way of presenting things, and he had this one devotional... Where it basically said he's sick and tired of hearing Christians talk about the sacrifices they make. And he quotes the verse out of the book of Hebrews, where it says, You have not resisted to the point of bloodshed. He says, You want to talk about sacrifices? Jesus sacrificed. You didn't come from heaven to earth. You didn't take the form of man when you were God. You didn't weren't beaten to the point of being a bloody pulp for the cross. You didn't take the punishment for sins that you didn't deserve. That's sacrifice. You giving an extra 20 bucks, yeah, that ain't sacrifice. You stopping and saying, sure, I'll do an extra stint back in the nursery, that's not sacrifice. And that's what Oswald Chambers says. And when you read that, it really makes you stop and realize he's right. These times that I stop and say, Lord, I can't give you another evening. I can't give you this, I can't give you that. Jesus is saying, verse 5, how many loaves do you have? The Lord is asking you, what are you willing to give up for him? Because here's the guess. I shouldn't say, here's the guess. I should say, you don't have to guess, because take a look at verse 8. They ate and were filled, and they took up seven large baskets. Note the emphasis there on large baskets of leftover fragments. Whatever you, quote, unquote, give up for the Lord, God says, I'll honor it. The Bible says God will be a debtor to no man. The Bible says that whatever you give with a cheerful heart, because I'm going to tell you right now, guys, I have made, and I'll use the word, sacrifices for the Lord. I did not do it in a cheerful heart, and I did not get a reward. There's been times that I've made, I'll use the word, sacrifices for the Lord, and I did it for the attention of man, and I got my reward for getting a pat on the back from the man. That's not what we're looking for. Saying, Lord, you take it. Here it is. I I, I think back into the ultimate example of giving everything over to the Lord. I think comes from Isaiah chapter 6, where God up in heaven says, Whom shall I send? And if you remember the response of Isaiah the prophet, very simple. Here I am, send what? Me. So, Lord, you got me. And when you got me, you got everything that I have a claim to on this earth. So you got me, you got my house, you got my wife, you got my marriage, you got my kids, you got my wallet, you got my food, you got my refrigerator, you got me, you got everything. And guess what? When I give up my seven loaves, what comes back to me? Verse 8, seven large baskets of leftover fragments. First word of the night is you. So what is the Lord asking you to let go of? You will be blessed. You will be absolutely blessed by it. So, we'll stop right here real quick. Anybody got any quick questions about anything thus far? Feeding of the 4,000 here before we move on. Good? Okay, let's move on to the next part about it. So we see what he does here in verse 6. Blesses it. It's just like the feeding of the 5,000. Verse 7, they also had a few small fish, and having blessed them, he said, he said to set them also before them. Verse 7, I don't, I don't know what to say about that. Um, every time I read it, I get a little different opinion on it. Sometimes I feel like it's added in there because the main emphasis were the seven lobes um, and the idea of the fish were kind of like they were also some fish there. I, I read some commentators and some teachings where they said in verse 7 that they took it as the disciples weren't willing to give the fish up. <laughs> It's like they were also hiding the fish as well. They also had a few small fish because they didn't really come straight forward with the fish. I don't know. I do know this. Whatever sacrifice you make for the Lord, we'll use that word again. God will take care of it and blessed. 4,000 people eat, verse 9. He sends them away, and it sets us up for what's going to happen next. Now, we focused on the word you. Now, the next word I want you to focus on is the word remember. Remember. I look at verse 4. How can one satisfy these people with bread here in the wilderness? And and I joked earlier, didn't they remember? Didn't they remember? This is why we're finishing with communion tonight. I listened, and it sounds really strange to say this, and let me explain it here as I ramble on. I listened to a great message by um, Charles Spurgeon uh, recently. And you may say, how could you listen to Charles Spurgeon since he died? Uh, 150, 30 years ago? Great question. Because they have a guy reading Charles Spurgeon's messages without an English accent, so it's really kind of weird. Don't ask me why, but I'm listening to Charles Spurgeon, but it's really not Charles Spurgeon. It's probably a 30-year-old guy from North Carolina recording it. I don't know. So I understand it sounds weird to say I'm listening to Charles Spurgeon, but I was listening to Charles Spurgeon, and he was doing this message on communion, and he just did the one verse Do this in remembrance of me. And he just broke it down. Do. What does it mean to do? What does it mean to partake of communion? This. What is this? What is this representing? And then he spoke in the word remembrance. And he said something that I'll never forget. He said, if Jesus is saying to do this in remembrance, if you have to do something in remembrance, what does that mean? That means you may forget it. Boy. Can you imagine getting to the point of forgetting about what Christ did on the cross? Now, before you think that sounds silly, how many of you mark birthdays on the calendar? Why? Because you're afraid you're going to forget. Oh, I would never forget. Then why'd you mark it on the calendar? Anniversaries, appointments, etc. You set alarms, you set reminders, because we don't want to forget things. So Jesus, the night He was going to get betrayed. He looks at the disciples and he says, Guys, do this in remembrance of me. Why? Because you're going to get so caught up in life, you're going to forget me. Boy, what a sad thing to think about. I mean, how could we forget God? I mean, that's not possible, right? Psalm 78, please. Psalm 78. Psalm 78. About a year and a half ago, the Lord really convicted me of something. I, I read through the Psalms every morning when I get up. I read a different Psalm. And once I get done with Psalms, I have to start Psalms again. I think it's a great morning devotional of just praise to stop and say, Lord, the day is yours. Well, when you get to some of the Psalms, some of the Psalms are remembrance Psalms. Where God is saying, I want you to remember everything I've done. And I think it's really important to try to remember what the Lord has done. I've told you before that we do this uh, memorial stone thing at home where we write down in the book every month what the Lord has done for us that month. And we've been doing this now for, I lose track of time, five, six years. You know, Wednesday night before Thanksgiving, we stop and we just do praises and testimonies to say, what has the Lord done? So let's remember. Because I realize as I read through the Psalms, the nation of Israel forgot. They forgot what God did. And God does not like that. If you go back to Exodus 13, you don't need to turn there, but when, when the Lord instituted the Passover, He just said to them something very simple. He goes, remember this day. How could you forget the day that you were set free as a slave? How could you forget that the Lord parted the Red Sea and you crossed through on dry ground? How could you forget a rock that Sent forth a river of water. Bread fell on the ground every morning. Quail coming waist high that you could eat. How could you forget the plagues? Psalm 78, starting verse 11. Actually verse 10. They did not keep the covenant of God. They refused to walk in His law and forgot His works and His wonders that He had shown them. They forgot. Twelve, marvelous things that he did in the sight of their fathers in the land of Egypt and the, in the field of Zoan. He divided the sea and caused them to pass through. He made the water stand up like a heap. In the daytime also he led them with the cloud and all the night with the light of fire. He split the rocks in the wilderness and gave them drink in abundance like the depths. He also brought the streams out of the rock and caused the water to run down like rivers. Verse 11, they forgot this stuff. It really started hitting me. Lord, I never... Want to forget what you have done. Did this idea of like, I pray and I pray and I pray. And you answer mightily. And I say, oh Lord, thank you. And then I move on, I forget. Psalm 106, please. Verse 8. Psalm 106, verse 8. Nevertheless, He saved them for His namesake, that He might make His mighty power known. He rebuked the Red Sea also, and it dried up. He led them through the depths as through the wilderness. He saved them from the hand of Him who hated them, and redeemed them from the hand of the enemy. The waters covered their enemies. There was not one of them left. And they believed His words. They sang His praise. They soon forgot His works. Oh, man. Look at 12 They believed His words. They sang His praise. They soon forgot His works. They did not wait for His counsel, but lusted exceedingly in the wilderness and tested God in the desert. And He gave them their request, but sent leanness into their soul. Jump ahead, same chapter, verse 19. They made a calf in Horeb and worshipped the molded image. Thus they changed their glory into the image of an ox that eats grass. They forgot God, their Savior, who had done great things in Egypt, wonderful works, wondrous works in the land of Ham, awesome things by the Red Sea. They forgot. It just blows my mind. You know, in the book of Hosea, Hosea chapter 13, one of the things that Hosea rebukes Israel for is this. He goes, when the going gets good, you forget God. Guys, the truth is, we pray more when things are tough. We're in the word more when things are tough. When we don't know what to do, we seek godly counsel. We try to figure out things and we're praying and we're seeking the Lord. When things are going good, we have a tendency to forget. The nation of Israel in Psalm 78 and Psalm 106 commits the sin of forgetting what the Lord has done. Jesus then fast forward says, Do this in remembrance of me. Be careful of forgetting what Christ has done for us. Be careful of that. Go with me now, please, to 2 Peter chapter 1. I've always enjoyed Second Peter, and I've always enjoyed the book of 2 Timothy. These are the last books, as far as we know, that Paul wrote and what Peter wrote. And it's interesting to see what the Holy Spirit gave them in their final words. You see this theme in the book of 2 Timothy, where Paul is constantly reminding Timothy... Remind them, remind them, remind them. You guys as parents do that to your kids. Don't forget. Don't forget. As you're walking out the door, don't forget. Look here at 2 Peter. Uh, starting verse, excuse me, chapter 1. I want you to look for the repetition of the word remind, reminding, and reminder. Look at verse 12. For this reason, I will not be negligent to remind you. Always of these things, though you know and are established in the present truth. Yes, I think it is right as long as I'm in this tent to stir you up by reminding you. Knowing that I shortly must put off my tent just as our Lord Jesus Christ showed me. Moreover, I will be careful to ensure you always have a reminder of these things after my decease. Peter says, listen, I know I'm going to die here, folks. Verse 13, I'm in a tent. My decease is coming, verse 15. So what I want to do, verse 12, I'm going to remind you. Verse 14, that I'm going to die here. So what I'm going to do? 12, I'm reminding you. 13, I'm reminding you. Verse 15, I'm reminding you. Sometimes we have got to be told the same thing again and again and again. We have to. If you would ask Dawn right now, we're in a season. You know, the weather is getting nicer. uh, The boys are done with school. Going in and out a lot. And we have a uh, door that goes off of our uh, kitchen dining room area onto our porch. And it's got... a straight handle that the girls can grab and pull down and so dawn says and not exaggerating probably about a dozen times a day boys you've got to remember to shut the door and lock it or the girls will go out right then dawn reaches a point of frustration where she says okay no one's using that door again ever Then i'm thinking well then why did we buy it you know why did we even put the door am i allowed to use the door because i i want to use the door i bought the door you know Actually, it's God's money. He bought the door, and he said, I'm allowed to use the door. So I would really like to be able to use the door. But you get tired of reminding. You get tired of reminding things. Peter, three times in just a few verses. Remind, reminder, reminding. It kind of concerns me a little bit that the nation of Israel so easily forgot everything that the Lord did for them. Kind of concerns me a little bit that Jesus said, do this in remembrance of me, because... You'll get so busy maybe in life that you'll forget what Jesus did. And all of a sudden, what drives you in life is no longer Christ. It's a job. You won't forget your job. You won't forget money. You won't forget that you want to remodel your kitchen. You won't forget the kids' sports events because you put them on the calendar. It's amazing what we won't forget. But Christ has to tell us, do this in remembrance of me. God has to tell the nation of Israel back on the Passover, remember this day. But then in Psalm 78 and Psalm 106, they forgot his wondrous works and they forgot their Savior. So would you go with me now to 1 Corinthians chapter 11? So I want to remind us of this. Um, I don't know who is uh, getting the kids for communion, but whoever is doing that, they want to go back and uh, grab the different classrooms here for communion. Thanks, Scott. Take a look at 1 Corinthians 11, verse 23. For I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the same night when he he was betrayed, took bread, and we had given thanks, he broke it and said, Take ye, this is my body which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same manner, he also took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. This do as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death till he comes. It's kind of interesting. In the Greek, there's two different words here for remember and remembrance and remind. One of them is the typical word that we use. Hey, let me remind you, because you're probably going to forget. So it's like you have a dentist appointment. They're going to send you a card. They're going to send you a phone call. They're going to remind you. Then there's another word that carries a little bit deeper meaning. They're very, very similar, almost used interchangeably, but it carries a deeper meaning of that when you remember it, it's like the light goes on. You're like, oh, yeah, this is is important. This isn't just, remember, we need to get a gallon of milk. This isn't just, oh, yeah, don't forget, Aunt so-and-so's birthday is coming up, and I put it on the calendar because I want to send her a card. This is like a little light goes on, and you stop and you say... I see the significance of this. This word for remembrance carries that idea of, I want to know the depth of this. I want to know why Jesus, on his last night on this earth, stopped and said, this is what I want to finish with. In fact, this is so important for us to do communion. He says, I'm not going to partake of it again until we can do it all together. That's a pretty big thing. Imagine having something that's so important to you that you stop and look at your loved one and say, unless I can do this with you, I'm never going to do it again. This is a big deal. And to think that one day you will get to take communion with Jesus. That's pretty amazing, I think. That you will sit with Christ and take communion with Him. One of my favorite verses in the Bible is in the book of Isaiah where it talks about during the millennial reign that Jesus is going to lead Bible studies. Can you imagine that? That's just something. That one day we get to hear Christ teach. Another day we get to have communion with Him. So as we get ready to partake of communion here, and the kids can come in, um, we're doing this in remembrance of Him. I don't know what's going on in your life right now. I don't know what's taking your time, your energy, your attention. I don't know what you're distracted with. I don't know what you're worried about. I don't know what you're nervous about, worked up about. Time to let it all go and do this in remembrance of Him. Now, out here at Harvest, we have an open communion policy. I'm sure a lot of you have heard me say this before, but in case we haven't, we leave it up to you to make sure your kid is old enough to understand and grasp what communion is so they get the chance to come in and sit with you. Do this in remembrance. I just want to share a quick little testimony here before we get going. Um, I started teaching Bible studies back in uh, 1996. And the first Bible study I taught, I started teaching Sunday school before that. And, you know, teaching out here at, at Harvest, etc. At that time, we were in the school. But the first Bible study I taught was back in 1996. And what had happened was there was just a group of us that would get together and um, just we wanted to learn more about the lord i mean that's really what it was and if i remember correctly it was just dawn and i had just gotten married and it was just us i think renee was coming out at the time um mike walther was another one i think jason punches christian i don't think you were there were you there first one christian was there not the first one um christian started coming right away but it was just one of those things where we got together and the reason we got together and did this is because we just wanted to learn more about the lord that's all we wanted to do And I did what I tell everybody not to do now. We said, let's just start in Genesis, right? I mean, that's the first book of the Bible. Makes sense. It's really good until you get to the genealogies. then you're trying to figure out why in the world it's all in there. But we just did it because we just loved the Lord and we wanted to learn. So God just blessed it. And then the next year, Jim came to me and said, hey, would you consider teaching Wednesday nights? Sure. We just taught Wednesday nights because that's what we do. And so taught Wednesday nights. And then the, we, had, we called it the Friday study. The Friday study got blessed, took off, and more people started coming. And so we started doing two studies. So we had two studies a week that we were doing out of the house. And then doing the Wednesday night study. Something then changed. It went from just saying, hey, let's get together and hear about the Lord. Just the pure simplicity of it. All of a sudden it became pressure. And it became this pressure of, okay, who's here, who's not here, um, was the lesson good, uh, was, it, was it funny, did they laugh every now and then, did I make a point Is something they're going to remember? And it lost the pure simplicity of just saying, I want you to know Jesus more. And that lasted, sad to say, for a long time. And then what happened was Jim stepped down and I took over out here then in 2000, and it kind of came back, just the pure simplicity of, I can't believe what I get to do. I get a chance to teach twice a week, not including small groups. I just get to tell people about the Lord. This is the greatest thing ever. Then all of a sudden the same thing happened again. Okay, the church is growing, things are are going well. It's like, okay, now all of a sudden there's this pressure, you know, okay, you got to make sure the lessons are good, or did they laugh a little bit? Did they remember this? And it became this burden, it became this pressure. Then all of a sudden it wasn't about just simply saying, I want you to know more about Jesus. It became this idea of presenting this package to say, look, we got this all figured out, we're this, we're that. And I tell you, you lose the joy of it. And what has happened here is as time gone on, the Lord got a hold of me and said, James, it's supposed to all be about me. And that's something the Lord's really been working on me, Lord, the last years. It's just this idea of it's not about James. It's not about Harvest Fellowship. It's supposed to be about Jesus. And all of a sudden now, over these last years, it's become this beautiful simplicity of, let's just get together and just see what happens. Be it a Sunday, be it a Wednesday. I don't know who's going to come. I don't know why you guys come or don't come. You guys make no sense to me. You guys are consistently inconsistent. It can be 10 degrees outside and 4 inches of snow. We debated on having church, and the sanctuary would be full. We're setting up more chairs, and I'm thinking, you guys, what are you doing out? I don't even know why you're here. And then we could have great weather, and the church is half full. It makes no sense. I've just let it all go, and whoever comes, comes. Whoever doesn't come, doesn't come. God loves them. Let's just love those who show up, because all that matters is can we remember Jesus? Jesus. I mean, that, that's really what it comes down to, is if you're here, I want to do three things. We want to glorify God, we want to equip the saints, and we want to make sure salvation is presented. That's all that matters. And then all of a sudden, you realize the simplicity of what Jesus is saying is, just do this in remembrance of me. And it's so utterly freeing and enjoyable in the Lord, because all of a sudden, it's not about us. And it's just like, Lord, we just get to tell people about you And I don't have to carry this burden of teaching and entertaining, whatever. It's like, nah, you're here. What's this tell people about Jesus? So I hope tonight as we finish with communion, you can just do exactly what we're talking about here. Do this in remembrance of him. Let it spark something in you to stop and say, it's not about work, it's not about finances, it's not about health, it's not about marriage, it's not about my house, it's not about relationships, it's not about any burden I brought in here tonight. It's truly about Jesus Christ. And I'm doing this in remembrance of Him. And when you get that, wow, that's just a real, real blessing. So worship team, if you want to come forward here, guys that are helping, if you want to come forward here,